Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Really excited for this episode. Gotta say, it exceeded my expectations. Oh, you had low expectations? No, you just like, you never know what you're gonna, I mean, this woman is like, on a book tour, she's doing like Oprah and Howard Stern. So, you know, who knew if like, what her vibe? You're really know. doubting your own ability, you're saying. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, I just didn't know. I mean. Here's the thing. You might be thinking, what do I want to know? What am I curious about? What are my questions for Molly Shannon? I'm a fan. What's What else is there for the for, for me to, to hear about? Right. Love White Lotus. Loved SNL. Yeah, loved- like a big fan of her as an actress. But Molly has such a complex story. She has a traumatic story from her childhood that she's going to share. She wrote a book that is so great. I'm telling you, please read this book. It's called Hello, Molly. It's a memoir. You can buy it everywhere. And it is a fascinating story. It's a so quick well read, written. too, even though it's like 400 pages mm-hmm. or whatever it you is. just get through it fast because Because you don't want to write it down. There's so many interesting stories from SNL, really poignant stories from her life. She's fantastic. It's, it's a, a great- very relatable. There's just really something for everyone here. She covers everything. You say that a lot. Oh. All right, let's let everyone listen to it. Molly Shannon. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Erin. Hi. How are you guys? It looks like you're in like a professional studio. <laughs> you know what it is? I got this um, thing that I flip up because I always, whenever I was making little videos for like things that I had to do, I, I always felt like I couldn't find a background without like stuff in the back. So you just lift it up and it, it's so great. You can put it anywhere. Wait, we need that. We've been really struggling to yeah. find our, our podcast vibe because everyone, every room we're in, people are like, ooh, looks a little janky. But now we look <laughs> professional. Now this looks nice. This though. is better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. You can get them. Um, it's actually a green screen, but I put a little blue paper over it. But cool. I'm glad so, you think it's professional. I do. It, look, it almost looks like an audition tape. Are you like putting yourself on tape for us right I now? I think Molly's straight to offer. She's offer only. <laughs> no, I think she's. I think she wants to put herself on tape. <laughs> and five. Perfection. Yeah, exactly. How uh, tall are you? And let's see your angles from the side. Yeah, give us your profile. So I'm Molly Shannon. I'm from California. I'm five foot five. Yeah, that's Wait, when was the last time you auditioned for something? Um, let me see. Good question. Um, like you're offer only, right? At this point, you're offer only. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes I do Good audition, for you. but you know, I can't even remember the last thing I auditioned for because it's probably been a long time. That's a power move right there. Damn. <laughs> I mean, we know White Lotus was straight to straight, straight to offer. Straight to offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did straight. He, to, well, yes. we're like jumping around, but now that you're mentioning White Lotus, because we need to like start properly, but we're already starting basically. Um, okay, great. Uh, but now that you brought up White Lotus, did he write that character? Cause you have a long relationship with Mike White, right? The creator. Yeah. Did yeah, he yeah. write that character for you in with you in mind? Or did he just like give you the part? I, that's so interesting. I think he did write it with me in mind. Yes. I believe she's that. so yeah. humble. She knows that it was written for her, but she's <laughs> no, I was not trying to remember, it. but I'm pretty sure he did. Yes. I, I think so. Yes. Um, yeah. okay. Well, we are really excited yeah. to have you, Molly. Um, I'm mostly just excited to hang with you because I haven't seen you in a while and I miss you. You weren't at the party that we were at recently. Oh yeah, I wasn't. I saw her more recently. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so fun, Sarah. Okay, Molly, I want to explain how we know each other. We only met, we only met this year or at least like within the last year. Yeah. I I feel like we've known each other forever, but I guess. Well, you haven't. So (laughs) that's just a feeling you have. (laughs) 
It's just a feeling you have because you're used to be a fan of hers, but you were not a friend of hers. Right. Right. So being a fan yeah. is different than a friend. True. Um, we met Molly at our friend Shelly Reinstein's bridal shower. Yes. And I saw you and I, I think White Lotus was on at the time where I just finished watching it, maybe. Yeah. And yes. I got really excited when I saw you. And I, it was like, I kind of manipul- manipulatively like got us to sit at the same table because I felt like we were in a vibe. Um, yeah, yeah. Sarah followed us to that table um, and then also sat with us and we really connected. Yeah, we really did. And that was, yeah, that was such a fun um, bridal shower too. Yeah. It really and was. Kelly was so happy. We had such a great table. Our table was up. I mean, we were there for many hours. It was a, it was the A table for sure. Yes. <laughs> but it is true. Like you never know when you meet a celebrity, what the vibe is going to be. Mm-hmm. Are they going to yeah. be nice? Are they going to be welcoming? Are they going to open up? Are they going to like be vulnerable with you? And without going into detail, I feel like Instantly, you connected with everybody there, everybody at the table. You were very open, and we're all obsessed with you. That is so sweet, Sarah. Thank you so much. Well, I felt that way about you guys. I was like, these sisters, this is so fun. And we just had so much fun. But Sarah has a good point that you've been famous for a long time. I know it's kind of weird to say that to someone because it's just a weird thing to say, but but you've been a public figure and like very well known for a very long time. And you really don't feel guarded to me. You feel really open. You've been through a lot, which we'll get into. Um, And we, this wasn't like a planned question. It's just kind of part of the conversation now. Like, what do you, what's, what's your, your feeling on like how that is? And do you have to stay open? Because as someone who's in the public eye, you face criticism. I'm sure you've Mm -hmm. had people, use you or betray you or take advantage of you or friends that don't have good intentions. Like, how do you stay with such an open heart? I think I have pretty good instincts about people. And then also I, I feel in general, I feel like women need women. So like if I, if I were to go out for dinner with them, somebody new, new or whatever, and they were really guarded and didn't share anything, I, I feel like, you know, I, I would, I would not want to open up, but I feel like women need women. So I, I don't want to push people away. I think, and I think there are comedians who use humor to push people away, like as a defense. And I've never been like that. I was more an actress more than a comedian. And so um, I love hearing about people's stories and I don't mind sharing about myself because I think you can, you know, get closer that way and help one another and share stuff. If it doesn't feel too, too, like too much, you know, test it out kind of thing. I love that. Molly, why okay, first of all, we're you're here, you're on a book tour. And yes. we are one small stop on your book tour. Um well, we we forced her to do this. Let's 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 be honest. Yeah, we 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 friend shamed her into doing this. I pushed her into a corner when I saw her at uh we were hobnobbing with a bunch of comedians uh-huh. a couple weekends ago and I was like, mm-hmm. Molly. So, anyways, we tried to book you. And you and the funny thing is that like I'm pretty sure your publicist was like she's really busy. She's doing a book tour right now. We're like, yeah, yeah. We're trying to get this to be a stop on her book tour. We know she's on a book tour. This is a podcast people listen to. So that's why we need her to be on. They're like, no, like real stops on the book. Tour. Like, like the she, today show. She did Oprah. So yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. I think it's like Oprah today show and us. That's really the three places to hit. Yes, actually it is. Right. Thank you. Yeah, well, Aaron, yeah. you're, you're, we have to say like, we have a very, loyal uh female fan base yeah. of many many that's why we got her on the stop hundreds of people who will buy this book mm-hmm. hundreds <laughs> um okay so molly i've read your book we both read your book Thank it you. is amazing like Thank truly you. 
so well, you have a really give a combination of fantastic stories to tell heartbreaking stories to tell but also you're a great storyteller which obviously you're an actress you're a writer you're a comedian it makes sense yeah. but it was such an enjoyable read and so we want to dig into some of the parts of the book obviously we don't want to give everything away because we want people to still buy it yeah. um and by the way there i don't know if we're allowed to promote this but there's a um, website called bookshop.org which is a great place to buy books because they give money back to local bookstores um yeah. just as an alternative to the amazon route you can do amazon if you want to oh, but wait, you want to like take down amazon in this episode i don't want to take them down just giving <laughs> you other options that also help local bookstores bookshop.org is a great place to buy books um, they're not, they're not paying me to say it. it's just a good place to buy books. Um, great. so why don't we start with you telling us like, why, why you, now, why now, why'd you write this book now? Um, it wasn't, you know, honestly, there was nobody pushing me to write a book. It wasn't like I had people saying, please, would you write a book? I just, um, motivated myself. My husband was very supportive. He was, my husband Fritz was like, you should write a book. That'll be so good. So he was very encouraging, but I really had to motivate myself. And it's one of the hard, it's really hard. Like now when I see friends of mine writing books, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much respect for you because I really know how hard it is and how much work it is. And I really liked, I like that it's different than acting. I kind of like the quiet of a book and just I, I didn't, I didn't write it for any other reason than to be a book. I wasn't, there were no ulterior motives. I wasn't writing it to turn it into a movie or it wasn't anything like that. I just, I just, um, you know, you know, I get offered scripts and stuff and there's like female parts. I'm like, oh, this part, this, this female part, like some of them are so corny or very limited. And so in the back of my head, it's like, I should tell my own story, but I was kind of afraid um, but I guess I felt like I did have a over, overcome a lot and I worked really hard on myself in therapy and it was not easy. And so I just felt like I, I thought, you know what, let me share my story. You can overcome kind of a tough childhood and still have a really good life. And, um, so I wanted to share my story. Of course I wanted to be funny. Um, and, uh, what were you, you scared know, of? Like when you say uh, you were they, scared to put it out there? Um, I don't know. I just, you're kind of opening things up that it's like, oh, do you really want to open that up? And I felt protective of my father because I really, truly, deeply love my father. Um, but then I also wanted to honor my mother's life. And I feel protective of my sister, Katie, who died in our car accident. I felt protective of everyone. I would never want to hurt anyone. I'm not the kind of person that would ever want to hurt anyone. You know, like it just, it's not in my thing, or I would never work with the type of uh, editor who wants to be like gossipy or I, yeah. I just don't, I don't like to do that. I, I wouldn't want to do you that. You want it to feel like you're honoring them, not exposing their story. Exactly. Yes. Wanting to honor, honor them. Yes, yes, exactly. And also, and also I wanted to show that, you know, it can be complicated. And I think that, you know, my relationship with my dad was very loving, but also complicated. There yeah. were times where I really, you know, could be so angry at him. So I wanted to give a real, a real true portrait, father, daughter relationship. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of like all of those things. I wanted to inspire people. I wanted to be cathartic. I hoped that it could help people, wanted to make people laugh, kind of all of those things. Did you ever book. tell your dad when he was alive that you were thinking of writing a book or you would ever want to write no. a book? No, 
no. But when he was alive, when I would do talk shows like Letterman, I would say, oh, could I tell that funny story about when you took cleaning pills, like speed and would clean the house? And he was like, yes, tell it. It will help people. It will help recovering addicts. So he would always let me um, share stories about him. He was very open. I knew him very well. Right. You know, help people share the story about when I took all that Adderall and then cleaned the house for three days. I mean, listen, it helps you clean clean better. Help people because he was in um he was in AA and he found sobriety and he was in recovery. So he was like, Yeah, you can tell it, tell it. So he would be alive when I was telling those stories. He was very open. Yeah. You know? So now, yeah. I mean, you've been on a lot of you've been talking about the book a lot, and I'm sure, you know, it's it's uncomfortable, it's awkward that you are on a book tour and you mm-hmm. wrote your life story, and the foundation of this story is this really horrific, tragic event that's there's nothing that could be more personal to you than, than the story. Mm-hmm. And yes. so, you know, I don't, we don't want to put you on the spot to have to retell the story, but you're on a book yes. tour and it's like, it's not just a book that you wrote about a fictional person's life. This is your life and the tragic event that shaped your life. And so, yes. you know, I don't know on a Monday at two o'clock that you want to dive into it, but, mm-hmm. but can you share for people who don't know just sort of quickly what, what that story is so that people know sort of the, the foundation of where your story starts. Oh, sure. Well, yes. When I was four, my mother was killed in an automobile accident. My dad was driving. We were coming home from a graduation party. My little baby sister, Katie was also killed and my 25 year old cousin and me and my sister, Mary survived. We were age four and six and my dad was very badly injured, but survived and um, went on to raise us in the 70s in Cleveland, Ohio. So that's like the hard part of the story. Oh, it's so hard to read that story. One thing I, that yeah. jumped out at me that I, I, I wanted to ask you about that I was curious about was that, you know, your dad obviously dealt with the guilt in so many different ways. Um, yeah. Doesn't look the same on anyone. I was surprised yeah. that the way you told the story, it felt like, there wasn't a lot of, um, or maybe there, you, I want to ask you, was there a lot of anger towards your dad from family members or blaming? Cause it didn't feel that there was a lot of blaming towards him for the accident. It felt like something kind of happened to him as well. Exactly. No, there was not blaming at all. As a matter of fact, um, no, no, I didn't blame him. It, it wasn't thought of that way because this was a time where there was no, there was never a blood alcohol report. This is the seventies where there was never, we never knew for sure really what had happened. He never wavered from his story till, till, till his death. It was like an all day party. There had been drinking. Then he took a nap. Then they left much later, nine at night. He'd asked my mom to drive. My cousin could have driven. They were like, no, you're fine. You can drive. A group of people walks him out to the car and says goodbye. You know, he he drove for 90 minutes. It was we were only we were 18 minutes from home when the accident happened. So, you know, he always stuck with his story till his death. I'm like, no, I'd taken a nap. And my mom and I'd asked your mom and she said, no, you're fine. So we were always more assumed, you know, fell asleep. it was fell asleep. Right. It's like, I, I don't want to get like, I feel like I don't want to let him off the hook for, yes, it was drinking involved, but did, did we know ever, you know, without a doubt, Oh, it was this or this. No, we did not. You know what I mean? This was a time where there just was no blood alcohol. We, we didn't have any of that. I, ch- I chose to believe my dad. So no, it wasn't like people were blaming him. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, I think he was very hard on himself, right? Of course, you know, feeling guilt and stuff, but it's not like we grew up 
you know, thinking that, you know what I mean? We thought of it more just as an accident and right. yeah, more like that. Right. I'm so fascinated by how, cause I feel like when people have these traumatic moments in their life, you like block them out. And I feel like yeah. so many people I know who experience trauma as, as children really like cannot tap back into the past in the way because you protect they, yourself from yeah, it. Yeah. In the way that you did, yeah. like your memory is so vivid and like multidimensional and like, you feel like you're in the street. Yeah, no, really. Like, how did you, like, do you feel like all of a sudden it just came back to you when you started writing or like, no, I I've never forgotten any of that. That's so interesting because a lot of people have brought that up and I'm like, Oh, I remember everything. Like I remember having to go to the bathroom in the hospital and like crying, like mommy, mommy. I distinctly remember all these relatives giving us gifts. And we were like, and I was like, where are they? Because it's such, it's your mom. So I, I remember all of that and just being like, you know, really wanting to see my mom and my dad. So it is interesting to give the perspective of a four-year-old because I remember how I thought and what I was thinking and what it felt like and what I did. And then going into a fantasy thinking, you know, I, I remember all of it. So it wasn't like I had to do some type of special therapy to go back to recover blocked memory. It was nothing like that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I don't yeah. I don't hear it's that a lot. It's really fascinating cuz I mean there's nothing more heartbreaking than thinking of a little girl that like that feeling that we all know when you're little and you're like I just want my mom. I just want my mom right now to feel safe cuz I'm in a hospital, I'm confused. Or like just wanting your mom is the most human feeling on oh, earth. Exactly. Yeah. And to picture you as a small girl having to learn that that's just never going to happen again. I I mean, listen, we're all wired the way that we are wired, but the fact that you are such a joyful, loving, happy person after mm -hmm. experiencing that is so rare and unique. Thank you. Well, it does give you this, like this, you know, uh, a real appreciation for life. I think when you lose a parent at a young age, it's hard to lose a parent at any age, but when you lose, losing my mom at age four, I just have like an appreciation for life and you never have how long it's going to be. You just have a very different perspective on life, health, living, how many years you get with people. So you don't take it for granted. It just, it just changes you forever in like deep, profound ways. And I, I, I spoke to Stephen Colbert about it too, when I did his show and I've spoken to him before because he lost his father and his two brothers when he was 10. Oh, wow. And he, he told me, we kind of compared notes and he said he always thought when he was the age, his kids were, um, when his dad died, he always thought he was going to die or something, mm, yeah. something like that. Like, yeah. like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm still alive. Well, I'll, I'll probably, you know, he assumes he's going to die at the age his father died of or, course. or something like that. I mean, I, maybe I got that wrong, but anyhow. no, I think that there's kids that when you get to the age that your parent was, when they died, you're scared. You won't live past that point. It's just, we've had yeah. a, we've had way less traumatic things happen to us in our life. And we have way worse attitudes I mean, than you do. You and I are always like, Oh my God, our childhood was traumatic. <laughs> and then, you know, you read your book and you're like, God, we're you're like, such... we have no, we have no excuse for our bad attitude. None, <laughs> none. No, that's why you're a good role model. Molly. I blame everything on my childhood. So I can't do that anymore. No, I guess you can't do that anymore. <laughs> Literally like something I'll be like, just leave me alone. I had a fucked up childhood, you know? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it really felt too like, you know, knowing you, obviously we don't know you that well, but, but 
you really are just, you're a caretaker. Even in the moment that I sat down with you for the first time, I really felt seen by you. I really felt like almost cared for. Like the stories I told you wanted to hear about them. You wanted to know about them. You were, it wasn't just this like fake moment. And reading the book, it makes sense because like you went into caretaker mode right away. I mean, the story of you bringing the hot dog to your, to your sister at school, cause you were so terrified she wasn't going to eat. And you laying in the hospital room and all you could think about was like looking around at the other little kids going like, they have it so much worse than me. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. I could have really used a hot dog that you could have brought me at school sometime. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, you didn't bring me shit. No, I didn't. <gasps> and I'm still paying for it and I'm still paying for it. Today. <laughs> Oh my God. You two make me laugh so hard. (gasps) By the way, that's something I want to talk about. Just when you talk about laughing and everything, like, you know, so many comedians are always joking. Everything is sarcastic and you are not that way at all. You are a very, I don't mean serious, like you're serious, but you're a very relaxed, like real serious person who's not like joking all the time. Yeah, I you're actually not- think you're wrong. And Molly, you'll tell us. I actually think it's yeah. it's the comedians on like that level on her and Adam Sandler and, you know, Will Ferrell. I actually think, you know, the- Chappelle, who we were with, like, yeah. they- these are actually quite serious people, I think. I mean, maybe I'm yeah. wrong. I don't know. I'm not a comedian. I think but- you're right. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, I think... I don't like that. It's so funny. Even when people do that, like if they'll joke around or or like, you know, if I'm in an interview with a comedian, say you're doing press or whatever, and the person just makes jokes about every question, I don't even know how to do that. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, I should try to do that if I don't like a question, like just make up a fake answer. But it's really not even in my wheelhouse. You know what I, I mean? I don't like even really B-level know how to do comedians. That. Like B-level comedians are always like, it's always like shticky. Well, like, you're, Cause you're not making yeah. jokes all the time. Right. Yeah. But like, yeah. which is a good thing. It's exhausting when someone's making jokes all the time. Yeah. It can be a push, pushing people away. And I'm more like curious. Like if anything, I, it's, it's actually, it's, it's hard for me to not be asking you two questions. Right. right Excited to talk about Element. You know why? Sophia was in my house the other day and she was drinking Element at my yeah, house. Because she said, I need, she goes, I need a um, a hydrating drink that doesn't have sugar. I was like, oh, I have one literally right here in my kitchen. It's called Element. Yeah, you guys don't realize all the things that, all the symptoms and side effects of being dehydrated. I mean, literally being dehydrated gives you a headache, makes your skin look wrinkly, makes you feel tired, makes your mouth kind of like, mm, like that, that, ugh. like being dehydrated is, ew, what is your You mouth can die like? of dehydration. You, you like dry mouth? I'm saying you can, being dehydrated, I think people just skip over how bad being dehydrated is. So Element will just hydrate you real fast. But it's electrolytes. That's the important yes. thing. It's, it's electrolytes with none of the junks. There's no sugar. There's no coloring. There's no artificial ingredients. There's no gluten, no fillers, no BS. It's it's keto, low-carb, paleo. It's suited for all those things. It's just clean hydration. You should always have it in your kitchen. So in my kitchen, I have a little um, like plastic bin with my teas and different like you know powders. And I just have these Element electrolyte packets and you just make them anytime you're feeling a little dehydrated. If you're somebody who still drinks, um, I'm obviously not, then you can do it for a hangover. Well, that's the thing. These aren't just for people who are like 
working out. Yes, obviously it's great when you're sweating, you need a, like you need the electrolytes, but this is really just for any human being because we all need to be more hydrated. Mm-hmm. Element is so sure that you will love their product and come back for more that they are offering a free Element sample pack that is eight single serving packets for free. Just cover the cost of shipping, $5 for U.S. customers. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash foster. This deal is not available on the regular website. That is D-R-I-N-K. L-M-N-T dot com slash Foster. There's no vowels in Element. Just L-M-N-T. Element offers a no questions asked refund. It is totally risk-free. So if you don't like it, you can share it with a salty friend and give you, you will get your money back. back No questions asked. Oh, sorry. Stitch Fix Kids. I wore wore a sports bra that I bought from Stitch Fix This isn't about you though. This is about the kids. I know, but I'm just saying that I like Stitch Fix. Why do you like about it? I like it because I went on there and I took the survey of what my style is and it recommended all these things to me. And I really liked all the things they recommended and they're really cheap. Like they're very affordable. Well, Stitch Fix Kids is, I don't know if you guys have kids or what, you don't like kids maybe, but getting Mm -hmm. them dressed is a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Figuring out what they like, what'll fit them, what goes together. It's another reason to not like them. What? It's another reason to not like them. No, but Stitch Fix Kids, it just makes the whole process... um, very easy. You yeah. take the quiz, you explain, you know, oh, they like this. She likes this. She's into that. No, not really her vibe. And then it puts little cute outfits together. So when it comes to Josie, you might have to say to them, like, she has bad style. Both my kids don't have great style. Yeah. But where do they get that from? Well, listen, for them, they have good style. I personally don't like it, but they think right. they look great. Right. Well, as long as they're happy. So Stitch Fix Kids um, is great because you get to give feedback and input. They learn what your kids' taste is, and then they send styles to suit their unique personality. You can do it from toddlers to tweens that are really picky. um, and age 2 to 18. Yeah. And so your kids can try on pieces at home, and then you you haven't even bought it yet. And then you basically send back what you don't like, and you keep what you love. Plus the shipping and returns. And there's always free. No subscription required. No, it's really great. So... I think it's really helpful to have clothes sent to your kid and then you try them on and then you just send back what you don't like. They also tell you like, because if they don't like something, they're not going to wear it. No. So you got to get a lot and then let them be like, eh, yes, no, yes. And then you send it off. Exactly. So try today at stitchfix.com slash foster and you will get 25% off when you keep everything in your kids fix. That is stitchfix.com slash foster for 25% off when you keep everything in your kids fix. Stitchfix.com slash foster. One of the things that we talk about on our podcast a lot, you know, we have a lot of women who listen to the podcast. And we I was going we, the same way you were. Good. Do you we're want to, very yeah. connected today. I love that. I was wow. going to go here. The yeah. same place. Okay, great. great. Yeah. Molly, you're really bringing us together. Great. I love that. Um, so something we really talk to women about that, that, that they respond to very well is the idea of re- rejection is divine protection. Yeah. Um, failure, failure to launch this idea that you are not where you thought you were going to be at the age that you are. And, yeah. and women feeling really discouraged in general at the timeline of their life, not happening, you know, how they thought it would and, and feeling yeah. really discouraged. And so I really want you to talk about, cause you talk a lot of in your book about the struggle. Now, obviously you had the struggle of your childhood that catapulted you into your life and, uh, you know, the way that you appreciated everything, but you also had baggage. You had stuff that you had to clean mm-hmm. up for yourself. Talk about the purpose of the struggle you had in your career. That's really an area that women connect to for us is, is how hard 
you struggled for so long and how hard you pushed to make your career happen because there's a lot of women, they think 30 is like the end of their life. They think, write us and they're like, I'm 24 and I don't have a husband. And we're like, uh, thank God you don't have a husband yet. Or I don't, I'm not living in my dream job. And, and no, we have literally women writing us who are like, I'm 31. I don't think it's ever going to happen for me. I just want to give up. We're like 31. Yeah. What? And you, you struggled so much. You pushed through so much. You worked every job. So just, you know, give us some, give these ladies some encouragement. Well, I think that, um, women can do whatever they want now. It's such a different time. It's like, you could, you could have a baby on your own, or you could, you could do it with a partner. You could do it with a friend. You could live by yourself. You could be married and live in two different houses. You go, uh, 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 uh." I feel like women can do anything now. You know what I mean? Like, why are we living in these like limited kind of ideas about, you know, from like the, you know, so long ago about how it's supposed to be. It's like, you're in your house, you live your own life. Nobody's seeing what that is, but you. So make it what you want. You know what I mean? So I think that I always look back like things that I wanted, like when I auditioned for SNL, I had wanted it like five years earlier and I got rejected. I remember they were looking at women's tapes and they passed, passed me over. And I was like, no, I was so upset. But when I, whenever I look at this stuff in retrospect, I'm like, oh my God, thank God I didn't get it then. That wasn't as good a time. I, they came back five years later and then I was much more ready and a characters developed. So I was so happy. So it's, it's, I do believe that everything happens, you know. But where was your self-esteem? Where was your self-esteem at that moment? Because most people or a lot of people, when they would get rejected from SNL, they would think, I'm the worst. I'm a loser. I'm not good. I'm not funny. I'm not meant for this. Like I like you. When you got rejected from <laughs> SNL, I sent a writer's packet. I got rejected. Um, did you? Yeah. I did. you weren't rejected. You just never. You never heard back. Well, I could still hear back. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I could still hear back. It was like seven years ago. You never got like a rejection, rejection letter. letter. That's so true. You, you never. But Aaron, you never know who it got to. Or, yeah, you that's know, true. It's like it's like in all honesty. Uh, exactly with that subject. I don't know if Lauren Michaels ever saw my tape. He probably didn't. I think mm. it would, it didn't. I don't think he ever well, did. He, he probably did. I mean, he probably did, but he probably didn't see your writer package, but <laughs> it was really good though. It was really good. I, I like pr- approved it. I remember looking through it going, Oh my God, Aaron, you're going to be a writer on SNL. I remember thinking it. I remember oh, reading your material going, holy shit, this is crazy. You are a writer on SNL. I know. And it didn't happen. <laughs> and here we are that's still not there. Great. It was really Here we good. are in my living room. <laughs> um, but um, so so take us to that moment, though. Like, how did you not turn in on yourself? How did you still believe that you were like meant for it? Um, because I just thought, oh, well, like I was very disappointed. I really cried. I remember f- finding out I didn't get asked to fly to to go audition. And I cried on a payphone outside of my apartment on the corner of Fountain and Vine across in the El Pollo Loco. I was like crying. And then I just picked myself up and just thought, you know what? I'm just going to work really hard on my stage show for the next few years. And if they come around again, I'll be really ready to go. And I guess I had an idea, attitude that, look, I'm out here in LA doing what I, what I love, pursuing acting. And I saw a lot of people that I grew up with in Cleveland, Ohio, go to college and then give up on their dreams and move back home. So I really did think, at least I'm out here pursuing what I want. And I feel like there's so much meaning in that. Sometimes it doesn't mean it's not all about just getting there. It's just pursuing what you want and going for it. And I think I have friends who, you know, kind of did what their fathers wanted them to do. I mean, men I know who just were like, I have to please my father. And they were like extremely, you know, successful or women trying to please their parents, but not really doing what they wanted to be doing. So I think, 
being brave enough just to really do follow your passions is like that alone, whether you've made it or not, is a very meaningful, you know, path. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so would, what like something I really got from your book is because we talk about this a lot is yeah. the special sauce that is in being yourself. Mm-hmm. You always stayed yourself no matter what. So when you went through yeah. phases where people are like, you know, we're looking for girls more like this, or we're looking for girls more like that, or we're looking for these kinds of characters, you always stayed true to Molly Shannon. How mm-hmm. did you have that instinct? I guess it, it would make me mad. Like if, like I remember when after I did get SNL, some casting director said, oh, yes, you know, she used to audition me all the time and I would never get the part of the best friend on some dumb sitcom. And she was like, oh, yes, that's so great about Molly at SNL. I, she's just grown so much more over the years. And I'm like, no, I was the same person who came in. It's just Lauren took a chance. He's brave. He's not. Follow-. So I guess it would make me <laughs> angry. Really so sometimes that's good to use your anger. Like I would be like. Uh, I was kind of tough. Like, I think even when I was a waitress and I would audition for these commercials and I remember like auditioning for one commercial and they were, I remember the writing wasn't good and they kept, they were kind of blaming the actors coming in like, no, no, this isn't what we want next, next. And then I finally, and I was a waitress at the time. I said, I said, I'm going to have to be honest with you guys. The problem is the writing. It's not the actors. These are all very funny people waiting in the waiting room. you got to fix the scripts. The <laughs> writing is not up to par. Wait, did <laughs> you love, really say like, that I would do, I would do tough stuff like that just because I was like, don't blame the actors. You got a writing problem, buddy. I love that confidence. That honestly, that story you're just telling me made me think about the first script I ever wrote. And I sent it to my friend who worked at CAA and he was like, I really like it. It's really like it. You're not ready to be at CAA. It's too early, but I really, yeah, it's good, but come back in like a year. And I was like, okay. And then somebody slipped it to the head of, um, lit at CAA and yeah. Joe Cohen. And he was like, I want to yeah. represent Aaron Foster. This script is amazing. And all of a sudden my friend called me. He's like, I found you. I knew it. I knew <laughs> oh. it all along. I told you how good you were. And I was like, actually, you told me I'm not ready to be at CAA. And now I'm going to be with like the top guy at CAA. Like, so I'm going to WME. <laughs> that, so, but see, so much of that stuff is for women. Like I think, yeah. I, I think women, you know, the comedy world is tends to be more boyish too. So you really yeah. have to push hard. Yeah. And so I think I did always... Yeah, I did have chutzpah and I would look at it as, you know, I would get down and I would tell my dad like, oh, I'm not blonde and beautiful and I'm never going to make it. And he was like, oh, Molly, with that attitude, you know, you're never going to don't have that attitude. And I was really into doing creative visualization. I bought this book by Shakti Gawain and I used to write out stuff in the present as if it already existed. I would Oh, go to- manifesting. Manifesting. Yes, I believe in it. I wow. know this is a different talk. form of manifesting. Nope. What you're Which saying. We had a really bad episode of our podcast that nobody should listen to called the manifestation oh. episode. And it's yeah. really, it's really bad, but this topic is great. But I believe in what you're saying because a lot of the people I know that manifest, they think about all the things they want and their vision boards of like, I want this. Whereas I think, and now you're confirming this for me, that the way to do it is if you act as if you already have it. Yes. You write it in the present. As in if the it present. Actually, yes. So you're writing like whatever you, you know, whatever. I mean, I definitely wanted to be a mother. That was very important to me mm-hmm. that I, I lost my mom when I was little. So I used to write, 
I am a mother. You know, I think at the time I, I, I I'm so lucky. I have two children now, mm-hmm. Stella and Nolan, a boy and a girl. But at the time I wrote, I have a beautiful baby. And I described it as if it's in the present. And I wrote all about how I was going to be on SNL in the present. Like wow. I am making millions of people laugh. I mean, I go back and look at these and, you know, it's like, I can't believe I wrote all Wait, before so you were I, cast, you wrote that yes, before, before Molly, yes. you should have put that in the book. I know I should have put that in the book. We got to yeah, see that. Wait, I love that. You didn't put all this shit in the mall. Okay. Well, book no. two. Book two. <laughs> I, I got to put that shit in the book. Yeah. But um, no, I did not put it. And I should have put it in the book. Yeah. But, this is important. Know, but but is, what, what also is important. Wait, did I just interrupt you? We're big interrupters. No, not at all. Not at all. Speak for yourself, important. babe. Okay. What <clears> I think is important here is that like, and we talk about this a lot in our podcast, is the relationship that daughters have with their mothers and the daughters have with their fathers. And if I was to look at you, your dad did a pretty good job and your mom clearly did up until, you know, (laughs) but you said in the book that your dad is the one who made you confident. He gave you your confidence, which has clearly like shaped your, you know, your entire life. So yeah. when the ability, the ability to bounce back from no, those but early listen, rejections, but, but like, no matter yeah. what, as hard as it was and as dramatic as it was, like, yeah. it almost felt like you had a pretty considering the circumstances, like your dad really did something right with you. He did. He really, and, and, you know, you only need, you probably only need one parent. I mean, I think sometimes people think, oh, you need two, but I think if you have one, You need one of them to be stable. One, one good one is really good. So yes, he was very like, really believed in me. Like Molly, you go out there in Hollywood and doll yourself up and put on your high heels and you march into the offices of those agents and say, hey, hold the phone. I got talent. You know, you give me like advice like that. But no, he really did believe in me. And so you- I felt that um, support when I was out here doing what I loved. And I also uh, really did believe, at least I'm out here trying for what I believe in. And and I still do think that I don't think you get to some point where you're like, yeah, yeah, I made it. And now I'm perfectly happy. It's like you, I saw people, friends of mine later who became, you know, superstars and I, and some of them maybe only felt as good as their last movie. And I thought, Oh my God, if you feel that way, then, that's ridiculous. So I might as well enjoy where I am because I, I think you should just enjoy being creative and not worry about what, what, whether you're the top or this, I feel like in Hollywood, there can be a lot of fear. And if you buy into it, it's not good. So I just feel like, Oh, I'm so glad I have a life in the arts. I'm a working actor. So I have reasonable expectations. It just felt like you had unconditional love. And I think as a parent, like that is what we need to give our kids, whether it's the mom, the dad, whoever it is, you just need unconditional love from someone. And it feels like that really does that, that is, that leads to a confident kid, which then a confident kid becomes a confident adult. Exactly. And letting them follow their passions. I think a lot of parents get afraid. No, you've got to, I don't know about doing that. You know, my dad was scared about me pursuing a life in the arts. He was like, well, I just want you to be happy. And I was like, well, I think I'll, I do want to do that. He was scared, but he let me do it. So I think it's also hard for parents to let their kids really do pursue what they love. Even if you think, oh my God, that's such a hard road. You know, I think it's important to, to, to do that too. Let them I think good stuff comes from that. But as you know soon as I mean? you as soon as you encourage your child to abandon themselves to follow your dreams for them instead of their own, 
you yeah. teach them to abandon themselves. You teach them yeah. to not be in touch with what they care about and what they love. And I, I've always been Thanks. so um, like impressed with parents who allow their children to be who they are. Of course, you have to give yeah. them boundaries. Of course, you have to teach them the right lessons to stay within the right, you know, lanes of safety and like productivity. But really, you got to let your kid be who they are because that's who they are no matter what, whether you stifle it or you let it blossom. And exactly. you just teach your kid to do work hard and to, you know, be honest and put everything into what they love. If they love it, then do it to the full extent. But exactly. there's just so much damage done when you, when you force a kid to do what you want them to do. Yeah, exactly. And also why is it this pressure? I, I feel like there's so much pressure nowadays too, with like college and this and that. It's like, Oh my God. It's like people find their, everybody has different timings. Some people go, I was talking about this with a mom friend of mine. Um, you know, one kid is maybe a little bit faster at that. The other one has this little bit of a slower path and she's the same mother to both, but um, I, I don't want to say who it is, but, but anyhow, I was just going to say, I feel like there's so much pressure to like be the best, and, you know, achieving and, and, you know, great grades and ACT, SAT. It's like, it's too much. It's, it's so like, aggressive. Oh it's, it's ridiculous. So, it's so I, I just, aggressive. Wait, what are you saying here? It's so aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, why all this? Like, how about just doing stuff at your own pace as you wanted? And, you know, school also is very language oriented. It's really for like a certain type of brain and it's, it's not for everybody too. Some kids are visual learners. Some kids are, you know, I talk about this with friends of mine who went to college for a year and then just were like, Oh, I didn't like it. I ended up going to beauty school and I was so much happier. I'm like, right. Cause you're an artist and now you're in LA and you're doing the beauty business and good for you. You know what I mean? It's like everybody, there isn't one, you know, there's so many different ways and there isn't, it's, it's not some race. It's like, it's like, I believe that if you truly do what you want and you follow your heart, good things will come from that and don't have some map of the timing of it all. Who, who, who says that? That's ridiculous. We've talked about modern fertility a lot. I think that um, it is just, it's very clear. Okay. I'm not going to look at the page when I say this. There are a lot of things that you can learn about your fertility and women are finally getting the, the hint that you have to start looking younger and younger and paying attention to what you have. And so no matter what age you are, even if you think you're too young, you should get a modern fertility at-home test sent to you and just get an overall check. You can talk on the phone to a um, professional that can tell you what the numbers mean when you get them back. And then you kind of know like the timeline. It's really devastating we didn't have this in our 20s. It's yeah. just such a bummer. If I hadn't known in my 20s that my low, my egg count is low, mm -hmm. what I would have frozen those things. You, you have two kids, so I don't feel sorry for you. I'm just saying maybe I wanted four. Nope. Still don't feel sorry for you. You don't okay. have enough kids. You don't have enough kids. I'm just saying if I had have at least had the information in my 20s as to what the future is going to look like, mm -hmm. I would have frozen eggs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you're not really our demo here, Sarah. So you can sit this one out. Okay. Um, but Modern Fertility has really helpful tools to help you get a hold on, you know, where you're at in your fertility journey. And, you know, going to the doctor costs thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, while this test costs $159. And with our discount, it ends up costing $139. Um, right. Really get a baseline. New, just just know what you're working off. with and then don't think about it for eight years, 10 years, but just like see... See what you're working with. See what you're working with. So right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash foster. That means that your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it will cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash foster. 
modernfertility.com slash foster. Ooh, I have been trying this Vegamore stuff lately. Oh, it's the best. And I think my eyelashes are thickening up. They I are. Had, I had my makeup done the other day and this girl said, you have great eyelashes. No one's ever said this to me before. Right, because you don't. It's the Vegamore. Oh, thank you. No, but you just have thank like you. little, like normal, very, very little, normal. Little wispies? Just normal, blonde, not that long, not that full. Oh. But they they do look good right now. Okay, thank you. So Vegamore is... No, no, it's it, it works. It is a hormone-free really and paraben-free hair growth product. It transforms your hair. They use a holistic approach to hair health, which is like smart botanicals that promote visibly thicker, fuller, longer-looking hair. It's really simple, guys. It works. You put on your lashes. You put on your brows. It thickens. It gets longer. It just does. It works. I use it also, but you know what I also use is their shampoo and conditioner. Mm-hmm. The Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner. It lathers fantastic and smells so good. Exactly. Love it. So there is no risk when trying because they have a 90-day money-back guarantee. Which you know why they do that. They do the 90 days because they know it's not coming back. Yeah. They're like, we'll give you a 1,000 days. You're not going to send it back. It's true. But with 91% of customers saying that they saw visible, visible thicker hair, they don't they don't send their stuff back. No. Uh, don't let damage of your past hold your hair back. <laughs> this is what they asked me know, to say. I know, but I understand, but I just wish you could say it. Like, let me try it. And okay, see great. Say it. Say you the call sound, to, you're literally... Say the call to action. Okay. Without sounding like All you're right. doing an ad. All right. <laughs> <laughs> don't let damage of your past... <laughs> no, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Don't let damage of the past hold your hair back. <laughs> what? That doesn't make sense. Your tone See doesn't See your make sense. hair's full potential. I sound like Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, what are you doing with that voice? With Vegamore. Vegamore. Okay. Go what's, to. What's this accent you're doing? <laughs> I'm just trying not to sound like, you know, a freaking QVC host like how you sound over there right now. Okay. All right. Don't let damage of the past hold your hair back. <laughs> See your hair's full potential with Vegamore. Go to vegamore.com slash foster and use the code foster to save 20% on your first order. That is vegamore, V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash foster. And the code is foster to save 20% at vegamore.com slash foster. Did you ever veer from wanting to be an actress or it was always, I'm going to be an actress no matter what, it's going to happen. I'm going to get rejected here. I'm not going to get this this role, but I'm going to be an actress. You just knew. There was a time where I had struggled for a long time, Sarah, and I was finally, there was a lot of rejection and I wasn't getting a break and I'd been auditioning and getting rejected for these sitcoms a lot. And I was, I worked at Cravings as a hostess and I worked at different restaurants. I worked at Melon Roses on Melrose and Melrose Baking Company and hustling and temping at different agencies. And I finally was like, I, 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 I wasn't making it. And I did want to give up. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll get like my real estate license or something. Oh, and that's when the call and, came. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, maybe I'll get my real estate license. And I, I was working hard doing this show. I did this comedy show, the Rob and Molly show. And finally I was like, oh, I feel like I'm grasping so hard and nothing's happening. And then this casting director, Kathleen Lettery, she goes, you need a break. And I said, I know Kathleen. She goes, you really need a break been around for a while and I said I know I know you're the last thing an actress wants to hear is that you've been around for a while I had been around for a while and so I did think about giving up so I did I kind of took a year off where I stopped doing my show and I was like you know what I'm gonna stop grasping so hard I felt like I was holding on too tight and I just thought I'm just gonna relax for like a year and you know I had some money saved up from commercials and restaurants or whatever so I just took a year off met friends for coffee stopped 
trying so hard and squeezing its heart and trying so hard. And that's when I get the call that SNL was looking for people. But it was because I let go. Mm-hmm. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. <sighs> but it's something that well, you, you can't... Have, you feel the same. I mean, I think we... Yeah. I do feel the same way. But it's always a dangerous lesson to give people because it has to happen authentically at the right time and you have to mean it. Mm, you can't yes. fake the universe out. Mm-hmm, so you can't yes. be like, oh, okay, well you know, that person stopped trying and then it happened because you have to stop trying when you are truly at, at your, your break, yeah, at your breaking yeah. point and you are actually yeah. ready to walk away. That's when the universe is like, okay, I've tortured her long enough. <laughs> I'm going to give her her break. But you can't yeah. fake it. You really have to be True. all in for as long as you can be. And then yeah. when you pull the reins back and you mean it, then the universe listens. So it's like you exactly. almost, you can't even plan that breaking point. You know what I mean? You just have to be all in. It's so true. And I got to the point too, where I was like, I remember being at, it was like an audition for, yeah, this story's in my book. I forget if it was like Seinfeld or something, but I remember being like, it was a kind of quick thing where the the people that they were going to cast would go straight to producers. Like say they called the girls at three and you would know if, if you were going to make it to the next step because they were bringing the girls in at five to meet the producers. And so if you weren't asked to stay, you'd be in front of all these women and like, okay, thank you. We don't, we don't need you to stay it till five. And so you'd be bye. And I remember going to my car and feeling so rejected and just like, I don't know if I have the heart for this. I felt so down. I just, I thought, you know what? I don't know if this is, this hurts my feelings too much. I just feel so. Were you, were you auditioning? Were you auditioning to be Julia Louis-Dreyfus in? uh, No, she was already, uh, I wasn't, she was, wait, was I auditioning? What for was her role. Yeah, for her role. No, you weren't auditioning for the role. Oh, no, no. She was already cast. The show was existing. And maybe it was like a guest spot on that show or something. And I think I didn't get cast at that time. And I just remember feeling like just it was too, too many rejections. And it was I think it was that show. But I just felt like I don't know if I have the heart for this anymore. It's mm-hmm. like it's too. Is this hurting me too much? Yeah. It feels like too much rejection. And that's when I pulled back for you. It eats away at you. It really it eats does. away at you. And yeah. by the way, friends of ours, all of ours who are a-list movie stars who yeah. who just like die inside when they when they don't get the role they want because there's literally there's just one role and there are like yeah. 50 women who wa- uh. also want that role and who are being considered for that role and I think it just never you just have to find your fulfillment and self-worth elsewhere because you are always yeah. going to lose. I mean, maybe not if yeah. Jennifer Lawrence, but I'm pretty sure Jennifer Lawrence too. I mean, she may have lost out on I'm a sure role. I'm sure she's lost out on role. Like it really is just like torture. Yeah. 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 And you can't just esteem yourself from all that stuff either. That's dangerous too. Like you really have to work on your, you know, inner self and esteeming mm-hmm. yourself from other things than just your work or achievements. Cause it's, da- it's a slippery slope because it can be a roller coaster, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, now in terms of advice for young creative people, Um, I think it's really interesting for you to talk about your, how your inspiration for your characters. And a lot of people asked us about Mary Catherine Gallagher and asking like, Oh, is it pulled from anything in your life? And of course it deeply is. Will you explain like how you created characters out of yourself and out of people in your life and, and how they stemmed from something real, not something funny to you? Like you're not up there trying to be funny. You're up there being real. Can you explain? Because a lot of people are like, I want to be a writer, but I don't know what to write about. And like, I have a blog when nobody seems to care about it. And like, I want to, you know, make videos, but it doesn't seem like they're hitting. And, and, and I think you have good advice for, for people to know sort of where to pull from. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you do know how to write, it does give you more power. If you, if you are, like for me in my world, if you're an actor and you do know how to write a little bit, it is better to be able to do that. Because for me, before I was writing my own show, I was just waiting for auditions to get cast into something somebody else had written. And I was like, this isn't even, this is like a little corny, this like one dimensional female mm-hmm. character. I thought, eh. and then especially in writing- comedy, especially as a comedian, like if you can't write yeah. anything, you really are at a disadvantage. It's like being a songwriter. It's like being a singer in Nashville yeah. who can't write a song. It's really going to yeah. be hard. Exactly. So even though it was harder, it was kind of a blessing that I was rejected getting those parts on sitcoms because if I had get cast in one, I would have been forced to create my own body of work, my own characters. So it was because I wasn't getting cast that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to work on my own show. So that way I'm not just so dependent on auditions. That way the auditions will just be like, uh, you know, one fifth of the pie and I'll be doing all this other stuff that I can control. I'll write my own show, I'll do my own show. So my show will be the main thing. And then if I get an audition, I'll be like, oh, yay, that's part of, that's under the umbrella of, you know, my company that I can do that audition, but it won't make or break me because I have my show. So I really just started meeting with a group of comedians that I met in comedy class at Second City. I'm, I'm not a Second City performer, but they they came to LA for a while and I met a bunch of comedians and we started improvising in my living room on like Monday nights and coming up with characters and and then doing shows and and um, writing. And then Rob Muir and I d- 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 decided to just turn it into a two-person show. And he was more a writer and he was like, I want you to really take center stage. So we just started writing a 55-minute show and performing it live. And then I would learn from performing it like, oh, good, that worked, that didn't work, that worked. And then walk around the block after the shows and go like, okay, that was really good. That was good. That was good. Then I would take notes, then go perform it again. So it was almost like I learned from live performing what worked, what didn't work. I made it very friendly. I didn't want the show to be too long. I made it so agents could come after work, have a glass of wine. We made it like fun, like not too long, not some like long two hour show. We wanted it fun. People come see a little comedy, go have dinner after with a friend. You know, I made it very, cause I, I tempted agencies. So I kind of knew what time they would leave the office and I wanted to make it very. And you'd probably hear them complaining about having to go to some two hour show after work and like how to get out of it. Yeah, they're tired. So, um, I just think it's hard to, uh, I think what's important is to have reasonable expectations at first. Don't, you know, my goal when I did my show was, okay, if just one business person can come per show, that'll be good. So that was kind of a, you know, that's not the biggest goal, like one casting director, one agent, one, you know, so I had reasonable goals, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, that's, that's one tip I would say. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, it's what Erin always says to people that come to her and ask her advice about writing. They're like, how did you, how'd you get representation? How did you get a TV show made? And Aaron's was like, if you are a writer or you want to be a writer or you want to be a performer, there's no excuse to not just be doing it. There mm-hmm. are too many outlets yeah. now. Get your videos up on YouTube. Go to your, go to acting classes, go to stand up, you know, classes, go to second yeah. city, go to groundlings, go to whatever, make friends do like, there's just no excuse. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. just, just, did you ever consider, um, doing up? No, I, I never did consider doing stand-up. No, not at all. I was more an actress. I made, I was a drama major at NYU and I really love acting. So I consider myself an actress before. I, I never considered myself a comedian. I just kind of got into comedy. So you love it when like so funny. aspiring actresses or like young girls are like, I want to be an actress. It's like, okay, well you should, you know, definitely go try to get into like Yale or Princeton or NYU and you study. It's like, I think so many people now, like we live Wait, in if this you want time. to be an actress, you have to go to Yale? No, but I'm just saying when it's all said and done, I mean, listen, when you and I 
You're basically saying nowadays people say, I want to be famous is what they mean yes, to say. Yes, I just think people don't realize how trained some of yeah. our greatest comedians, actors actually are. And that when you walk yes. into the room and when actors would come into the room to audition for shows that we're producing or writing, we always yeah. look and we go, oh, wow, like they're really trained. Like, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, so and, Sarah, that's such an interesting point. Wait, look, I'm going to put on my sweater. Oh my God, favorite daughter. And by the way, I wear it all the time, like with my cute white shorts. I know I'm, it's a little hot, but I want to wear it for the interview. I love oh. that. You look so cute in it. Such a good yeah. By the way, you're so, so supportive and the sweetest. Oh my God, that's so sweet, Sarah. So I was going to say, you do have a good point. And Meryl Streep actually said that too, because I think a lot of her girls are really talented. I think yeah, and Meryl and I are similar. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, no. no, but you were saying she really believes as one of our world's greatest actresses that if you want to go into that, you have to do the training first and really study so that when you get in that room, you're ready. And that was certainly my path. I was a drama school student. I really studied my craft. And um, yeah, so I feel like I was prepared when those opportunities did eventually come. Like, yeah, yeah, but just you didn't just like, you didn't just study, though. You then also created your own education by doing yeah. your shows like that is the best training you can get is sitting in front of a live audience doing a show and getting real time feedback and then walking around the block. You're not like going to one Oak afterwards. Right, but you already you're had actually, her college degree you're, and then did that, right? That was such a yeah, trajectory. I did have my college degree. Exactly. Right, you studied theater at NYU. I know, but I'm also saying she's also was actively working on honing her craft as opposed to sitting on Instagram like girls now and just being like, look at how she hot I have am. Instagram then, but yeah. Well, whose side yeah, are you no, on right now? I'm, I'm on Molly's always. I'm on Molly's too. <laughs> well, we're both on Molly's. We're both on. But I was going to say one more thing too about writing. I have a friend who's a, a big memoirist too. And he's, he, his whole theory is if you can talk, you can write, you know, which is a very different way of, because some people think of writing. And there are some people that write, they're oral writers where they like talk stuff out before they get on the page. And some people are very not as, you know, social but they're really good writers. There's different ways of getting your thoughts on the page. Sometimes when you're irritated by someone, you can tell a really funny story because you have a desire to be heard and you're imitating some someone or something that irritates you. And so like I would do stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Like if you're like, oh, this girl came over to you. You could have a character from that story yes. of this girl and to be understood, you're imitating and doing an impression of something that bugs you. So take a little note of that. So you could, so I always had like a little book of like anecdotes of like ideas of that could be a good character. Or that would be good. I always kept a book and I still do keep a book of ideas that I have of stuff that I want to write or scenes. Well, what is, like, what are the things you want to do now? Like, obviously you are still a, a working actress. You're, you know, White Lotus is like the biggest show of last year. And I'm assuming, are you continuing on White Lotus? We can't talk about that, Erin. Well, I'm going to ask her. She told us, but we can't say. Oh. Or can't. Oh yeah. That's, well, no, Mike's doing season two right now in Sicily. It'll be American tourists visiting Italy, different themes. And have you um, been, have you been to Sicily great. in the last year for any I, shoot dates? I, I was in Italy last year shooting a movie, but I haven't been to Sicily to visit Mike yet because I just got been busy with my kids. But okay. um, right now, my focus is mostly on my kids because my kids are junior and senior, and I'm just really treasuring the time at home with them right yeah. now because I feel like you can never get that time back. And so I'm really what an amazing balance this. that you're like Wait, still no, working on, and with guys, your kids. Time out. Yeah. You, you also have another show. I just saw it. So what are we? Oh, doing? Yeah, I have another show. Yeah, I what? love that for you. Yeah. What? 
Yes, she's you're in another like, oh, show. I'm just home. I'm just chilling. It's like, no, you also have another show <laughs> that just premiered. Yeah, you're just like a stay-at-home mom, huh? Yeah, with a, with a new hit show on, what is it, Peacock or what is it? Oh, yeah. I have a show on HBO Max, HBO the Max. other two, and then I have a show on Showtime called I Love That For You about yeah. the world of QVC shopping. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Okay. I'm just chilling at home, but I have two shows on Stay at home mom over here. That's so funny. But wait, I want to say something else positive to women. I love, I love talking about that because I do feel like I struggled. I want to say too. Yeah. I just think, I think women can do whatever they want. I wouldn't fall into those constraints of, you know, it needs to be like this and I have to be married by this. I mean, that's so silly. Listen, we have women writing us every day because we have a really engaged, heavily female audience listening to this podcast. And um, women are having a really hard time right now. Yeah, it's a great time for women, all that. But people's mental health, I think especially women's mental health, is like on the decline. It's also overwhelming. Like there's decision fatigue because like you say, you can do anything you want. And so a lot of women feel overwhelmed. Like they have to do everything. You have to have a degree. You have to be beautiful. You have to get married. And you have to have a successful career. And you have to be a really good... And you have to have good girlfriends you stay in touch with and be an amazing mom. And you yeah, can't be seven really things all at once. It, it, it's overwhelming. And then because of social media, we're like, oh, they're doing it perfectly. So then all you're, it's uh, like rubbed in your face. All these other Yeah, people. I don't like that. The social media part has to make it so hard. I have to say, I did work very hard in therapy. I'm not going to kid you. I didn't get to some place of peace without working my ass off for 20 years in therapy. And I didn't have money. And I, I went to like a place called California Graduate Institute, where you could get a therapist for like $15 an hour. And it changed my life. So I I feel like if I hadn't done therapy along with pursuing my careers, it would not have been as easy. I feel like I did work really hard on my mental health and working hard on myself while I was pursuing. Does that make sense? Yeah, we're big proponents yeah. of, of therapy. Right. Big and advocates. I, had, I also had a, an agent too who dumped me and she was like, honey... She was like putting on makeup while she dumped me, like looking in the mirror. She was like, honey, you wear too much makeup and you need to get into therapy. <laughs> and she dumped me. And I was like, she's, she actually has a really good point. <laughs> About funny? the makeup and the therapy? Uh, well, no. She, she, yeah, she told me. It's kind of weird that she was putting put on makeup. makeup. I'll tell you, you wear too much makeup. Yeah, she told me I wear too much, mm. which I probably did. I was like a Midwestern girl who would like, you know, I did not have my, you know, straight blowouts together. I'd buy like cheap dresses from Bolton's. It was not. <laughs> Wait, from like all that rejection, like that you experienced, did you, did you, was there one like aha moment, like someone that, you know, an agent that dropped you or someone that told you you were never going to be anything or whatever it is? Like, does, was there ever a moment? I'm just, I, this yeah, I like in your book, question. but I'm just curious. Yeah. Did, was there ever a moment where you had like, I've, I freaking showed her or I showed him or, or. Ooh, I love this question. Okay. Hold on. Let me really think. Not to be on the spot. You can think about it, but. Um, no, that's such a good question. But I've like on such a smaller scale. Like cover of Rolling Stone. I've been dropped by a few agents and it always feels nice to be like, by the way, your show's really, f-. this is on a much smaller scale than you. But like, you know, I love, I love revenge. You know, I love, I love it. Okay. You know what? I do have an, and I love this question because it, it's, it's a story that's Oprah not. Oprah didn't ask book. you this. Did I ask you something Oprah didn't ask you? Asked you asked me something that's, that's not in the book. You're right. I did have an agent and I don't want to say who it is, but he had a very a fa- famous daughter on a television show. And, um, he had, he, uh, was a famous agent who did sign me. I had to go into his office and do a bunch of characters 
And I did really good characters in his office. Like, I think I probably did Mary Catherine Gallagher and this and that. And they signed me. But then he never sent me out. And I was doing my Robin Molly show, getting amazing reviews. And I could, they would never get me an audition. And I even sent in copies of the, I got singled out. I got these amazing reviews in like LA Weekly and LA Times. And I copied them and I sent in the reviews like, you know, and nothing, nothing. Then they dumped me. And I think I had to sign the release. And I wrote like my social security number because I was like, he probably doesn't even know me. I'm just like some name and number. And then I saw him years. Oh, and, and then I want to say that in, in my meeting with him, he was telling me about his famous daughter was an actress. And he was like, oh, she gets so fat. She just blows up. So we just have her in a diet of apples and diet Coke. Oh my God. And I was like, Ew. great dad, great dad. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so I was like, oh, but, um, but I was fascinated with that family. But then years later, I bumped into him at Dalt's restaurant after I'd made it big on SNL and he saw me and he was like, boy, did I make a mistake with you? And I was like, yes, you did blank. But um, isn't that interesting? Oh, my God. I, uh, love, I love that he owned up to it, that he wasn't like, I found you. I saw I was the first person to sign you. I'm I so happy that. he like owned up he to did. it. He did. He said, boy, did I make a mistake with you? Wow. Yeah. Respect. But can, you believe, can you believe that he had the daughter on a diet of apples and Diet Coke? Honestly, she in this she was fucked a- up town, I mean, parents are what? forcing their kids to get like freaking plastic surgery when they're 15. Oh it's, it's a dark time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, we haven't even gotten to any of the SNL. So here's what I want to say about your book. I think your book just offers so many things for everyone, okay? Like, truly, you just cover everything, the grief, the the loss, the parenting, the picking all the bad guys, the imposter yeah. syndrome, the rejection, the, the rise to fame and success and parenting and all the things. But I will say there are so many diehard SNL fans where it's like, if you are an SNL fan, this book is just... I don't know. I feel like SNL is kind of like private and you really never know about all the intricacies of how things work. For instance, I didn't even know that the stars, like the people like you and Will Ferrell and that you guys actually wrote your skits and that you had to like endear yourselves to the talent to get them to agree to be in a skit with you. I always thought the writers are writing it for the talent. No, it's a writing job. And they don't really tell you that. You get there... And I remember being like, well, I do have characters. I have, I do have characters that I did in my show, but I was like, how do I get them on the page? And I would go home and cry because I felt like I was in over my head, but no, it's a writing job. You have to write yourself to get on air because you're vying with 17 other people trying to get a spot on TV. So it's very different than being like on Will and Grace where they write your part. But what are the writers doing? You You have to write your own stuff. So what are the writers doing if you, if the talent is writing their own sketches? They write too, but you you can either get together with a, a person who's just a staff writer, or you could get together with another performer and write. But you're really generating your own material. I had you know? no idea, and I'm like, yeah. an SN- I, I mean, I don't watch every episode. I mean, I watch less now. But like when you were on it, like yeah. those were the days, and I never knew that. Did you know that as someone who tried to be on SNL? No, I didn't know that. But one thing I want to know, because I mean, I. SNL has a a bit of a, you know, complicated reputation. It's not like thought of as the best place to work. It's thought of as a hostel. I was going to edit this out. No, (laughs) it's it's thought of as not the best environment for women. um, And that it's super competitive, you know, because everyone's like 
it's not like you're on a team uh, like of people. You're all kind of competing against each other. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you always see the positive in things. Did you feel like you were exposed to like the toxic energy that that it has a reputation for having with for women or you felt like it was a really supportive environment for you? I felt like it was very supportive. I'm very close to Lorne and I felt like uh, SNL was so different than Hollywood. I felt like Lauren's world was like, yeah, he doesn't care what anybody in Hollywood thinks. He's just like, I want her and her. He doesn't care if you've been, you know, around town trying to knock on doors and not getting arrested. He's like, I believe in her. Come over here. So his world felt like wonderful to me and wonderful to women. And yes, you know, it's challenging. I'm not going to kid you. It's hard trying to get on air and this and that. But I felt like I felt like it was so much friendlier than Hollywood. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. I felt like, wow, I felt accepted in a way I never was. And um, uh, I mean, yes. So no, my experience was very different, but yes, it's hard. I'm not going to kid you. It is hard, but I, um, I, but I cut my attitude about it was like, Oh wow, this is like the Harvard of comedy. Like I'm working with these amazing writers and performers. So yes, it is hard, but I really did enjoy it. I felt like even if I didn't get stuff on, I was like, I'm still, it felt like a kind of like a creative arts camp, like a writing camp. Mm-hmm. It, it was definitely hard. I mean, Wait, when so I how do you get that, stuff on? Like you write stuff and then you show it to Lauren and then he's like, I don't like that. I like that. That goes like, how do you get stuff on? Yeah, you have to submit it. Um, you you pitch to the host, like Selena Gomez was just on, for example. So you would so if Selena came on, you the cast all goes and meets with her. Go, Selena, I have this idea for you and me. I'm going to play this. You play that, and then so you pitch your ideas. Then Tuesday night, everybody stays up and writes them, and the host, Selena, for example, would go around to each cast member and you would talk about your, what you're going to write for her, and you know your character that you might do with in the sketch with her. Then you submit it Tuesday night you could do a table reading Wednesday where they read about 35 sketches. And then from those 35, they'll pick, you know, pick the ones that are going to get to the show. So you have to kind of sell your sketch at the table. So you're reading it, maybe standing up, performing it and hoping that they're going to choose it. And then if they choose your sketch, you're the kind of writer producer for the sketch. So you would decide what the sets look like, what the costumes, the wigs, and you're so excited, but then they're still going to cut it from dress to air. They still cut a bunch more. So you never really know what makes it live to the air till Saturday night after dress rehearsal. Saturday night, you do an eight o'clock show, the dress show before the live show. So between dress and air at 11 o'clock, you go into Lauren Michael's office and you look at a bulletin board and you look and see. It's like in high school when you like go to like go to the board and see if your name is like if you got the school play. It is like that. And people sometimes are still in their costume. Like say you did a cupcake sketch. They'll be in like their cupcake costume with like a cupcake hat on and they go into Lauren's office still in the costume and they're like, oh, my cupcake sketch got cut no. in the costume. You know, it's it's like that. Wait, I know you said that, and I might be wrong, but I think you said in the book that Bono was like your favorite musical guest that he was like, what? But who was your favorite? Yeah. I mean, we can also talk about Bono if you have any tea on Bono. Oh, yeah. Love Bono. Yeah. Bono does great. nothing for me. Bono does Bono nothing for you? Does nothing for me. Well, you weren't on SNL with him. No, I'm just saying, like, as a as a music fan, just does nothing for you me. You too does nothing for you? Nothing. Does nothing for Molly, me. She's I'm sorry. I, like everyone has well. different tastes in music. It just doesn't do anything for me. Okay. Taylor Swift, on the other hand. Oh, Taylor Swift. Oh, yeah, yeah. She does. So, yeah. like, so would you say that was like, the most special music guest for you? Oh, Bono. That was amazing. Well, um, 
he was just, when they perform, it just, it felt like the roof blew off the house. And he's very Irish and nice. And he paid attention to all the sketches. He was like, Molly, that was great. I was like, oh my God, Bono's coming up to me after I performed. So it was very exciting. Well, he probably he wanted to sleep with you, but yeah. yeah he's he's amazing. Been, he was definitely but, trying to sleep with you. But Taylor Swift too, she was there for the 40th. And I was with my kids when they were little. And I was so excited that she was at the 40th. And my daughter, Stella, was so excited. We were like, oh my God. That was very exciting. Okay, so who was like the coolest? I love your story. I'm not, you guys buy the damn book, but you tell a great Whitney Houston story. Yeah, I love that Whitney Houston story. Very good Whitney Houston story. But we won't tell it because you got to buy the book. Yeah, I got to buy the book. I say, say, actually, I said this on Stern. Actually, um, oh yeah, Whitney Houston. Well, she was just really nice. I wrote her into the Mary Catherine Gallagher sketch and people were like, oh, she's not going to be in the sketch. You know, she she might not. They, they were just like, that's not going to work. And I was like, no, it'll work. So I just went and talked to her and I was like, Whitney, I'm going to play like Catholic school girl. And you just have to play a snotty girl. And, you know, you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, just make it up. Like you kind of push me out of the way and try to outsing me. She was like, okay, I'll do it. Because sometimes I think the writers would make a mistake of giving the music guests too many lines and they're not too intimidating actors. Yeah. So I was like, you can say whatever you want or don't say anything. Just, you know, push me out of the way and try to outsing me. And I'm going to push in front of you. You push in front of me. She's like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I was like, yeah, I got Whitney. And then before the live show, she was not showing up. It was like, oh no. So they had Anna Gosteyer dress in the Catholic school outfit in case Whitney wasn't going to show. <laughs> and Anna was like ready to go on. And then it was, I mean, five seconds before that, Whitney's here, Whitney's here, quick. And it was like, like five, four, three, well, make the switch. Boom. And it was Whitney. Oh, she showed up my last night and she God. was fantastic. So crazy. She, she was just like one of those pros who just gets on and just she's a performer like how intimidating if you're not a performer if you're not an actress or an actor to host SNL like the fact that Kim Kardashian did it and by the way did like a great job oh my god like like I could just picture Pete by the way being like I have a pitch you and I are gonna make out the whole I have a skit where we just make out on a thing she's like I'll do it I'll do it but like how intimidating. And her, and Kim Kardashian's monologue was so good. She was such a pro. She was like a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I mean, she that's really like went for basically it. what she was doing is like stand-up. Yeah. That was you know? amazing. I'm seeing a lot of people talk about article lately. Yeah. It's everywhere. I've been seeing Have not skinny, but not fat t- talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah. I'm article. seeing it all over. People are catching on, I think, because of our podcast. It must be because of us. I think so. You don't think they're like having a lot of different people do ads? No, just I don't us. think so. No, it's just us. I think we, I think we're the, we're, we're the people. To. Anyways, guys, article is furniture, okay? Mm-hmm. It is like, and I'm not even looking at the page either. Mm. Aaron and I both, we were introduced to this company because as you know, when it comes to ads for the podcast, we look at a bunch of different businesses and companies and we're like, oh no, yeah, oh, like that. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that furniture looks nice and we like what they stand for and yep. it's affordable and it's if all these things. If you're hearing us for it, it's because we actually really genuinely like yes, it. Yes. Without going into detail, we say no to a lot. Um, okay. Article has launched their new line of outdoor products for summer. Think outdoor like, furniture is so hard to find. It's really, what's well, also very expensive. Very expensive. Um, think like oversized statement loungers, dining pieces, sofas, all the things you need in your backyard. They have 42 pieces in their outdoor collection. It looks so chic, you guys. Yeah, like really if good. you get a cute little chair and 
table or it really just elevates and and also makes people want to sit outside. It's yeah, a summer. Sit outside, especially if you live with someone you don't like, sit outside. Oh yeah, sit, sit outside. outside. COVID, sit outside. Yeah, I article really, it, it you're at, you're really looks, a party at your house. You don't want to have to talk to anyone? Sit outside. It looks so expensive. Yeah, it's really But affordable. it's not. So Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash foster and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That is article.com slash foster to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Okay, one, one of my close girlfriends that will remain nameless said to me the other day, did I hear about Noom from, from you? I, I'm, I keep, feel like I keep hearing about Noom, but I can't tell if I heard about it from you. I think from I'm us. thinking about trying it. And I said, we talk about it a lot. I said it was me. It was 100% me. Yeah, because we have friends that are using Noom religiously and like have never looked better, have never felt better, mm-hmm. are thriving in life mm-hmm. because they're like being held accountable with the way they operate during the day. And you don't even think about it, you guys, when you're just like grabbing those chips and queso. Well, no, it's not shame people. No, it's not shaming people, but it's, it's like- a little shamey. No, it's not shamey, but it's like you have to, you, what we eat is our fuel. Just think about it like that. Mm -hmm. Truly, it is our fuel. But you know what is so interesting? Like, you know, when you put like a little tablet and it's like the size of a freaking hair under your tongue and it like actually takes your headache away or it, Mm -hmm. or it takes your cramps away. Like talking about Advil? No, no. I'm talking about like just the littlest thing changes how you feel. So imagine what like eating like a tub of queso, what that actually does to you. I'm just saying like- when you think about it like that, you're like, maybe I shouldn't eat that big bag of Doritos on the plane. Like, well, what you're is speaking that? to yourself because I don't eat Doritos and you do. No, I do. And you do it on planes. So Noom literally holds speaking you to accountable because it just makes you go like, oh, wow. Like, this was what my day looked like with food. And it just changes your relationship yeah. to food, which they eating. You have a psychological approach. You can yes. take it from here. Thanks, okay. Sarah. You're at a 12. Um, <laughs> it, it takes a, it's a psychological approach uh, to how you I'm eat gonna food. I'm going to go upstairs. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, bye. Great, great to see you. Um, it helps you better understand your cravings and your relationship with food. And it's, uh, it's got a whole mental aspect that you've never seen before on these, uh, apps that help you understand your food intake. So start building better habits today. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash foster. That is N O O M.com slash foster to sign up for your trial. Molly question. Do people still come up to you in real life and say superstar? And does it, bother you or do you like it never bothers me i love it i i write stuff that's fun to say like uh you know it's really fun to do it be like i never (laughs) get sick of it i'll do it one thousand times people ask me to do it at airports i do it it all the time as long i'm not as long as people aren't watching like i'll pull wait so people still say it all the time to you and ask you to say it yeah, I do it all the time. And you said no. Like, if you're, like, annoyed and you're at the airport and you're tired, are you like, no, leave me alone, or you'll do it every time? I do it every time. <gasps> Molly, you're an angel. 7 a.m. flight, you're like, fucking superstar. <laughs> I do do it. I, do, I will do it. I mean, I if, I wouldn't want to cause ca- call attention to myself. So usually <laughs> I'll try to do it quietly, like, in a corner, or I will do it. Yeah, I will do it. I will do it. And I, Molly, and it's like, just really come to the fun. corner with me, and I'll do it. I'll do yeah. it. <laughs> That's so interesting. This is, it, yeah. this is an interesting question because people wrote in questions for you. How did being a woman in comedy in the 90s impact your dating life? Oh, oh that's good. Okay, well, I think people can get very lost in relationships and they can be, that stuff can be really hard, especially in your 20s, you know, when you're like not knowing yourself. 
So I, I definitely had that where I pursued people who were unavailable or were very abandoning, but I did work really hard on that too. I read a book called Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. That's an amazing book. Even if you're not a love addict, everybody has some of those tendencies in themselves. That's good to so know. So I felt like that book really changed my life. I That's amazing. Like That's I good advice. Highlighter. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot of books like that. And um, I grieved my mom through men. I would pick unavailable men and kind of my sadness about my mom came up through dating, picking unavailable men. I would cry about the men who were unavailable, but really realized, oh, this is so much grief from losing my mom. When I of was course. Born. Yeah. Because when you go with like guys who want to be intimate, being intimate is revealing yourself, is showing yourself. And to show yeah. yourself who's actually wounded and traumatized, it's so much easier to just pick guys who don't even, who don't want to go to the next layer with you. Yeah, exactly. But I always tried to look at like, okay, well, if they don't want to go to the next layer with me, what does that say about me that I'm picking somebody like that? Yeah. I'm responsible too, because I'm choosing them. So what I want to say is I'm probably not really ready either. I'm scared. Just. I like that narrative. I always try to I say like that. that. they like, that you're the person picking all the unavailable people. And the only thing they all have in common is you. And so you always have to look at that. I think that women, we're so used to being like, guys are the worst, guys are assholes, guys are dicks, guys do this. Guy. And it's like, there are good guys out there, but we friend zone those guys because we want to feel tortured or we want to feel abandoned or we want to feel um, like we have to fight to get that person. And it does take a lot of self-work to fall for someone and be passionate about someone who wants to treat us kindly. Exactly. And it can almost feel like we're cut, like when you do, do, do that work. I think Pia Melody is really an expert in that. She really describes it almost like as a withdrawal, like when you're trying to remove yourself from somebody who is really not good or what she calls them avoidant addict, like, like somebody who will avoid you because they're too busy with work or this or that. And you're chasing them. You're the, and then it can reverse where you break up with them and they change you to be avoidant can switch into the love addict. But basically what she's saying is that withdrawing from those people is almost like, okay, day one recovery. I'm, I'm withdrawing from almost like an addiction. You know, it's like, if you could pick the one person who's comp- the, the, the deal with the, the love addict chasing the avoidant addict is you could pick the one person who's absolutely completely incapable of doing it to love you, then it would prove that you're lovable. You know, you pick the hardest one, but then you get to the point where it's like, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. This person can never do it. What am I doing? I'm wasting a year or two years or, I mean, I wasted time with people so much time that I look back on like, Oh my God, I would never do that again. Mm -hmm. You know? I know we always try to tell women who listen to the podcast that are younger in their twenties. Like we beg them to not give away that decade to guys who don't deserve you. We beg them because it's like, please listen to us. All three of us have done that. And it is such a waste of your energy and you don't, you're not any better for it afterwards. You're really not. It's not time well spent. It really isn't. And you know what's, I, I say this in the book too. I say, you know, it, I read a book on attachment too. And the types that can't really have fun during the beginning part, you know, even the first few weeks or this or that, they're slippery. They're they're avoidant, detached types. So they're not going to ever be able to do it. So if you can't even have fun during the fun part, forget it. Then what are they going to be like when things get difficult or, you know? So, but what I did too was, I went on a dating spree and dated a lot at the same time. So somebody seemed abandoning pretty quickly on us. Nope, they're out. They're out. But I kept a bunch going at the same time so that I wouldn't focus 
On, on, I always uh, think that's a good idea. And and our dating expert said the same thing. She's yeah. like, literally treat dating like it's your job. You mm-hmm. just date, date, date. Some people disagree with it, but... No, but I mean, when I met Simon, I was dating like three people and mm-hmm. I really started to like him, but he felt like somebody who wasn't going to commit to me. And so mm-hmm. the way I distracted myself from getting too hung up on him and only like obsessing over him was, okay, well, I'm going on dates with other people. And it distracted yeah. me because you're getting attention and you're enjoying yourself and you're going on fun dates and you're like, okay, well, this guy's yeah. not going to commit. And then all of a sudden, you know, they come around and they're like, I don't like you dating other people. Focus on me. Uh-huh. That's so good. Exactly. It yeah. works. Do you it, and have, it is, oh. it is no, no, I was going to say, it is a woman at SNL gave me advice. She was like, go to everything you're invited to. Just go, you know, don't dehydrate yourself. You know, have a, have a glass of wine. Scott, 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 look and see if somebody's cute. She was basically like, do everything you're invited to. You go, but you don't have to exhaust yourself. Go for an hour. Check it out. Look, it's anybody cute. You know, so she, she was kind of the same way, like treat it as like a numbers game, you know, uh, but Walk not in, like get a glass favorite. of wine. Nobody cute. Go home. Somebody no. asked a question. They said, they said, what is your, oh, dating advice when you have crazy hours at your job? Like you were on SNL for like, I mean, I can't even fathom what those hours are. How did you date with hours like that? That was really hard. So I didn't really date that much when I was first starting because I was so into that it was like my dream job. And so I did, I did, to answer the question, I did not. I really wanted to focus on that job. And then more toward the end of it, I started dating because I really did not have time. But I was happy to not be dating because I was like so thrilled about my career. But um, I remember probably getting crushes that were like distracting people that couldn't do it. And I was like, this is not good for work and this is too distracting. And this is, this is throwing me off my passion job. You know, like I, I felt like I, I couldn't have let that get in the way. But by the way, I, I think really... that's good advice. I actually think yeah. that there's, there's something in there, which is you don't have to date. If you're in your dream, if you have crazy hours because you're in a job that's fulfilling you, don't force the dating. Focus no. on your job because it's only going to then put you in a better position when you are ready to start dating because you're going to have a career that you're proud of. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And emotionally, it would have been way too much, Sarah. I couldn't have been involved in that kind of a super abandoning, painful stuff while I was trying to survive and succeed on SNL. No way. I would have been lost in the muck and I couldn't have done the kind of comedy I was doing if I was lost in some of those abandoning kind of relation, you know, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, Molly, is there a role that is well known to people that like you wish you got? Mm, I was going to ask that. Or that you look at and you go, I would have loved to play that role. Um, you know who I could see you as that you would have been really great at is, um, the stepmom in, um, in, uh, What's it called on uh, um, in Fleabag? You would have been really good as the stepmom in Fleabag. Oh, that's so did you see sweet. it? I I haven't. I, Molly's too I young for that. I think. That. No, it's I, it's I, what's I, her name? It's who? it's um who is that? The actress everyone's obsessed with from the great from not the from the great from um, Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman, exactly. Mm. It's Olivia Coleman. Oh, she's amazing. She was so good in The Lost Daughter. Um, I don't think there was there was really one. I remember Alexander Payne. I was up for the part in this movie about Schmidt to play Jack Nicholson's daughter, and I didn't get the part. And I was so disappointed. That one I, I really wanted because I thought that would be so cool mm-hmm. to play Jack Nicholson's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> You're so brilliant, White Lotus. It's crazy. I mean, if you guys have not seen White Lotus, you then you're, have living, you're living to under see- a rock. My favorite, and Mike wanted me to do it really natural. He was like, you know, don't do like um, acting like this rich lady. He was like, just do it really natural. You know, she's just like a bitch. She's like, 
looking at her menu with her glasses, you know, those kind of like Chris McMillan gave me a cute little haircut. He was like, I like to cut a bitch. (laughs) He gave me a cute little haircut, but Mike really helped me. He wanted it very natural. So she just loves her cute son. She's like, oh, so I love that Mike wanted, Mike really helped me. He was like, do it real, you know, just like, honey, this reminds me of the hotel that we visited and, you know, very natural. So, um, and I know those kind of ladies, it's loosely based on someone that I kind of know and they're oh. just in their own world. Yeah. Loosely. I can't say who, but I do know a woman who's a little bit, who was like that, but my well, favorite can thing. Can you was imagine like, if you said who? We'll that speak offline. hate you. <laughs> My favorite thing was going into the restaurant and looking at the menu and like what kind of yes. cocktail I want. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my, we just went on a trip. I mean, we we just met her recently. Oh, yeah. The girl that played the daughter-in-law. We just went to San Francisco with her on this like. Oh yeah, Dario. Uh, oh, she's, Alexandra. She's, she's so good. Yeah, she's, she's really so good. good. By the she's way, that so show, I, I always knew of her as like, oh, the hot, she's hot. She's in Baywatch, whatever. She's yeah, a yeah. brilliant actress. Yeah, she's great. Oh my God. She's Everyone in that show. She's a She's such a nice, she's a wonderful girl. And I think she's so talented. And this role just catapulted her over the, you And know. Sydney. I mean, hello. Yeah, Sydney Sweeney, isn't she so good? Honestly, so every good. single person in the show is yeah. phenomenal. We really know a lot of people in White Lotus. This is crazy. Dave Bernard. I mean, how are we not involved? He's not on it. He's a producer. I'm just saying, we, we really know a lot of the people in this White involved. Lotus universe. It's almost weird that we've never asked it's to be in it. It's weird that we have, yeah. Just no involvement. Oh What's my God. Yeah. Isn't everybody so good in that show? So, so good. Not one weak link. Um, okay, well, and listen. And Grady is so good. Oh, oh my God. That? Who's that? She plays the girl. She plays the girl that Sydney Sweeney brings on the trip. Oh, oh the that friend. girl. Oh, the, the friend. friend. Oh, yeah. Yes. She, yeah, Gort. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like yeah. one after another after another, right? And isn't Dave Bernard so great? Yeah. Yeah, he's the best. It's just so perfectly cast. Well, Molly, you're so amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about your book and your story. I'm guys, we can't stress enough. You really you should have to get this you really book. good should buy her book. Thank it's you. it's a fantastic read. And I love that you're so open and you shared your story with everyone. And I'm really excited to be friends. And we won't say that we won't say where we live, but I'm about to be your neighbor. Oh, Aaron's gonna be an annoying neighbor. She, every she's been going on a walk. You wanna do I, I'm getting at the grocery store, you want some eggs? She's gonna oh, be I sound like an amazing neighbor. I'm offering her eggs. I'm gonna take walks with her. I mean, this is like great oh, neighbor. I love it. Yeah, we, we have a great neighborhood, and I'm so excited for you to move to the neighborhood. I'm so excited too. It'll be in about two and a half years. Well, where am I in this relation? I mean, I moved to moved to our neighborhood. No, I can't. <laughs> well, you girls are so talented, and you make me laugh so hard. And I could listen to you talk about anything forever. So this was an absolute. Well, you're joy in luck because we never stop talking. Listen, we want to know who moved the needle more for the book. Stern, Oprah, or us. So if someone's <laughs> calculating it behind yeah. the scenes, crunch the numbers and let us know. Crunch the numbers. Okay. And you look at sales after each one of those and let's talk after, you know what I'm okay, saying? Great. And I bet you, I bet you're going to find sales from bookshop.org. Oh yeah. I hope yeah. I gave, wait, I hope I gave enough to the girl, the female listeners. I want to see if I can think one more good thing. Give her um, another nugget. I, I think we gave good stuff. I just feel like, yeah, don't limit, don't think you need to have this by this time. Don't buy into that. That's ridiculous. It's like, look at Pamela Adlon. She's 50 and she just created her own show. It's like, no, do not think that and don't, and you can have babies and all, you can form your families in different ways. If you want to go down that path, there's just, there's, there's, there's women can do anything they want now. It is crazy I mean? though. Like we, we talk about all the time. We look back and we're like, God, if we, oh, youth is wasted on the young. 
Like it yes. just is. Yes. I mean, your 20s are there for you to fuck up, to do dumb shit, to not necessarily know who you want to be, to date the wrong guys. Like that is what your 20s. But I thought we just told girls not to do that in their 20s. No, but I'm just saying it's your, it's like a, it's like a cushion. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's okay. Don't do it. But if you do it, it'll be okay. Yeah. If you do it, it's fine. Yeah. And one more thing I want to say too, this is like girly advice. I remember when I was going through a hard time with somebody who really wasn't available and I was just pining and obsessing and not feeling loved. And my friend Renee Stahl said to me, she goes, Molly, there is no, the one you're the one and whatever you think you want from that person, you can give yourself. And I was, I do always think that it's like, you can take yourself out on the most beautiful dinner and bring a book. You can give yourself a bath. You can, you can buy yourself a sexy outfit and you know, you, you can, you give yourself that and no person fixes that all. And you, I mean, you have to work on that even when you're in your, with your great partner, you still work on esteeming yourself. It's not all from them. You, mm-hmm. you know what I'm well, saying? I think that that's really right. Because like, just with you, if you had met Simon 10 years ago, you wouldn't be with him. Hell no. I would have fucked it up so bad. You you got yourself ready for Simon. So I agree with that. I, mm-hmm. I do agree that there is no the one because the person who we think is the one right now wouldn't have been the no, one. No, I think five like years ago, the, you have to. The one exists, but you have to show up for the relationship. You don't get to be with an amazing person unless you are showing up for them as well. They deserve an amazing person too. You, have to, right. you have to exactly. step up. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You in your 20s with Simon, that would have been a no go. No, I would have really <laughs> ruined that. Simon is a wonderful man. He is. And and Sarah, I don't know your husband. You don't know Tommy. You'll Tommy's meet him. also no, a wonderful guy. He sounds great, but I've seen him in the videos and stuff. He looks he's also so wonderful. He's European, he's so he's like a whole other. Wait, your husband's mm-hmm. Brits, right? My husband's Brits, but he's not European. He's, he's not? actually from Santa Barbara. No. <laughs> People think he's German, but he's he grew up in Santa Barbara. He's a surfer, painter from that Santa Barbara. I was looking so when I was funny. reading the book, I was like, wait, is Molly's husband German? I know you think he's like Tommy, like European, but no, 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 it's really funny. Tommy seems so funny. He is really funny. funny. He's great. He's European. He, we've been together forever, like going on 16 years. That's amazing. I know he has a great sense of humor. He has a really good sense of humor. It's like a dry, it's, it's a great sense of humor, but yeah, no, with Aaron, we, we don't know how Aaron got Simon. We really don't, but it's working out. Well, don't let him know. Well, he listens to the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, how are we going to end this? How do we end that? It's such a good episode. I know. We just say we love you. Wait, did you this say who so your fun. favorite host was on SNL? Well, well, I do have to say, I always say, I do say Jennifer Anderson and Gwyneth Paltrow were great hosts. They're very like, hey, let's go. They just go with the flow. The best Both girls. of them are in Yeah, they're just like ways. into it. They're open could to be doing cast, anything. They could be cast members. They're very like, Jen, I was very like, Great, let's do it. Like she's just a game for anything and like really easygoing and relaxed. And I Gwyneth, feel like Jen was maybe funny. gonna be an SNL character at some point before Friends. Jen was like uh, was like gonna be cast on SNL or something, right? Yes, yes. She, they want Lauren wanted her for years, but she was doing all these like pilots and stuff. And Gwyneth was just like a cast member. Like I did this sketch with her where she played a bad girl in Mary Catherine Gallagher. She's hysterical. She's like, Mary Catherine, get over here. Like she's, she can just do characters. And both of them were very natural on SNL and could be part of the cast. It's really incredible when you look at some of these women who are like still could be at the top. But I think she was just so exhausted being Mm -hmm. a famous, being an actress. She's choosing to have a life. She's choosing to have a life. Mm -hmm. She was like, Mm -hmm. I can't do it anymore. She did it for years and years and years and years. It was so successfully. So she's probably sick of the 
So, you know, I, I understand. Just she switched it up. Pivoted. Also, what's her camera? Diaz left the business. Mm-hmm. It takes a toll on you. I did too, but nobody noticed. Oh, yeah, Aaron also left the business. Nobody noticed yeah. that. Um, okay, Molly, we love you. I'm so excited to Bye, live with you. Guys. you. This was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. You were awesome. So Thank you for doing Okay. That. Thank you so much, Molly. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Aaron. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you... Do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. I'll take over. Our Our associate associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great.